Before They Were Beatles, Episode 9, A Get Back Special. This is the story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity and exploring musical boundaries. It is also a story of tragedy, coincidence and at times just sheer luck. It is a story of beginnings. The story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host... Alan J. Porter. For this episode, we're going to take a short break from discussing the early days of the group that became known as the Beatles and jump ahead to 1969 and the tail end of the group's creative output as we will discuss the Get Back Project. We'll be dividing the discussion into three parts, the TV documentary series, the Let It Be and Get Back final box set and the Get Back book. Part one, the Peter Jackson Get Back TV series. For this session, I've asked my wife Jill to join us to discuss the TV show, as uh, she patiently sat through all uh, six, eight or nine hours, whatever it was, depends how you count it. And we're going to break that discussion itself into three parts for each part of the series, so one for each episode. But first off, Jill, what does the Beatles mean to you? Would you think of yourself as a Beatles fan or just a casual observer or just somebody who likes the music sort of in, in the background? definitely wouldn't call myself a fan i like the beatles i I actually wouldn't call myself necessarily a fan of any band i just like music um i like the beatles i grew up around them i was born in 63 so i had older sisters that played the music and it was just there the beatles were everywhere you couldn't you know it was just something you grew up with and they were always there i had a couple of their albums as I got older, but I would say it was really when I met you that uh, I maybe listened to them a lot more than I had, especially their later stuff. I tended to have stuck to the early albums before and then started to learn to appreciate the uh, genius of the later albums and uh, really absorb everything Beatles. Yeah, you couldn't be in this household over the last 30 years and not really absorb some stuff of the, of the Beatles, as both our kids and our grandkids will attest to. Um, it is yes. pretty much in the DNA of this household. Um, Definitely. And that is fine by me. OK, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I thought what we do, as I say, is break this down and like talk about each of the three episodes. So obviously the first episode was the one set in Twickenham when they were in this in this soundstage. But I, I sort of want to lead into this just based on the fact that this podcast is around the early days of the Beatles. And I was actually quite surprised in the opening sort of overview that they did. There wasn't like out and out mistakes, but there was a couple of things that were wrong in the way that they implied how things happened. Um, it was great to hear that they actually started with the, In Spite of All the Danger, which is the same one we use for this podcast. So that was that was neat to see that Peter Jackson had picked the same intro music that uh, we use for this podcast. But 
it gave the impression that John had started the the, uh, the quarryman in 1956, which is obviously correct, but it actually also gave the impression that uh, Paul and and George had joined in 1956, which, as listeners to the podcast will know, particularly the last couple of episodes, is, is incorrect because it was 1957 that they, they actually joined the group. So they just never put up the 1957 date, so it sort of looked like they joined in 56. Uh, and then they also later on made it appear that Brian Epstein had sort of gone to see the Beatles in the, in the cavern after Ringo had joined, um, which again is is incorrect. Um, they just put sort of the, the pictures in the wrong order and they didn't put dates up. So not exactly mistakes, but it sort of gave the wrong implication, which for a project of this budget, this size, and the fact it took them four years to do it, I was, I was quite surprised about. But perhaps that's just me being nitpicky. But what did you think about that sort of intro montage that they did to get us up to 1969? Having been steeped in the Beatles for so long, it was a, you know, I, I don't know that I actually paid as much attention to it as I should have done. To me, it was just an intro. It seemed to cover everything. Sorry, but it was just an intro. Okay, that's fair enough. So we, we, it sort of gets to Twickenham and the, you know, the, they sort of lay out, you know, the, the Beatles have a task. They have two weeks to come up with 14 songs for a live show. And then we sort of get them on, on that studio in that cavernous space, which clearly did not work. Oh, it didn't. Not at all. It and was not acoustically good. They weren't comfortable. You could tell. Yeah, you could tell from the body language that they weren't comfortable in the space. And obviously there was other things, undercurrents going on. And I think just being in an unfamiliar environment, and particularly at the beginning with the cameras, I think at that point they felt the cameras were fairly intrusive. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And were aware of them to start with. And then over the days, they obviously got used to them. But uh, yeah, it just seemed to be totally the wrong environment for them. Yeah, because they were constantly moving stuff around and changing the microphones to see if they could get better sound, but it was never going to get. And they kept asking them to talk louder so that they could hear the conversations because it wasn't being picked up right. And that put a very stilted context to everything they said then. Then they didn't allow their conversation to flow until, like you said, they gradually forgot it was all there. But yeah, the the first beginning bits, it was actually quite hard to hear what they were saying. You had to really concentrate. So there's a few things from from that sort of specific points I want to touch on. I think the first one, and everybody's talked about it and shown the video, was just seeing that amazing footage of seeing Paul just pull, get back out of the air.
both you and I write and go through the creative process ourselves, I, I just thought that was so illuminating to see him just noodling around with words, pretty much the same way that you and I noodle around with words on the page. But to just see him do it and then just see that absolute classic tune just sort of suddenly appear 20 or 30 seconds into him just noodling around with the guitar was pretty special. It was. It was amazing. It was amazing. And the fact that he kind of just... The words, because he knew the beats he wanted, but he hadn't found the words. That was absolutely fascinating listening to that. And I thought that was a good lesson for anybody who does any sort of creative work to not think that it has to be perfect right out of the gate. You don't have to get all the words right. You don't have to. And, and I think that was a common theme throughout as they were developing these songs. Yeah, definitely. Um, that it was a good lesson and it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, go for the first draft, go for the, the nonsense words just to get the thing going and rolling and stuff. Yeah, and, and, and get out what you've got in your head. That whole thing of, you know, you've, you've got this chord, this tune or these lyrics, but you don't quite know what to do with them but the fact that you get them out seemed to create something that was more than they started with and I thought that was fascinating and the way the others would just pick up you know Ringo would start on the drums he would be playing and the others would just gradually pick up and they'd they'd listen along and then they'd just start playing without music without any agenda they were just picking it up and that was absolutely magical so one of the other things I want to talk to is Yoko. This sort of flipped the, the, the myth of Yoko being an intrusive, disruptive influence during the recording sessions, particularly at Twickenham, sort of on its head, because yes, she was there. She was alongside John, but she wasn't intrusive. I mean, she'd be just sat there and did her knitting and sorted through the mail and whatever, did her clippings and whatever else it was she was doing. So it made me think that maybe, you know, it wasn't necessarily Yoko inserting herself. It was maybe John just needed her there and it, it was coming more from him than from her that he want, you know, he wouldn't turn up unless she was there sort of thing. Um, and there seemed to just sort of be a, a tacit approval with everybody else that she was there. Because if you think about it, I mean, they knew Yoko. Um, Linda Eastman turned up, Paddy Boyd turned up, sorry, Paddy Harrison at that point turned up, and Maureen Starkey turned up, and George brought in a couple of Rangers who were the Harry Krishna guys sat at the, at the side. So they were all bringing in at various points different people to give them support. So I think she sort of, over the years, had a, an unfair rap, I think, and then I think this helped refocus that. I, I agree to some extent. I found it a little bit odd that she had to be so close to him while they were playing. I would have thought for the other three that that could be distracting and intrusive, that she was right there by his elbow all the time. Part of me found it a little bit sad. I mean, you and I are close. We do a lot of things together. We're doing this together. But we're not joined at the hip. If we were in a room where I wouldn't be sat right next to you the whole time. No, that's true. I, I found that part alternately sweet but rather sad that they both seemed so needy that they needed to be that close together that they didn't feel they could be apart that was to me an ultimate sadness more than anything else I found it interesting that she really didn't interact with anybody apart from Linda Eastman they mm. had a good conversation at, at one point and she did talk to the other members of the band but she was so much in the background that was very interesting it did change my mind somewhat but I also felt a level of sadness that both of them and one of them had that need to be that close. Yeah, but I, I also think, you know, that there was a very sweet moment when uh, George was going through the early stages of I Me Mine and all he knew it was a waltz. Do you want to hear the song I wrote yes. last night? Okay. Everything else, the posting is yeah. It's just a very short one. It's called I Me Mine. Yeah. 
And the two of them got up and started waltzing that around. That was lovely. That was absolutely lovely, yes. And the joy in the two of them doing yeah, it. Definitely. And then the others discussing, oh, you should do that yeah, during we, our show. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was great. And, and I think it really showed her acceptance as well. Yeah, because so. I, I really didn't feel on the whole show any animosity towards her. No. From any of the band. In fact, the, the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah, acceptance. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So talking of animosity, let's talk about George. Um, poor George. Poor George. Yes. I think he obviously had this huge back catalogue of songs that he wanted to get out there and was feeling quite frustrated. Um, but I was also, also impressed again by his creativity. We just t- talked about I Me Mine. And, you know, he basically came in and he said, I watched a show last night. There was a waltz in it. And he came up and it inspired an absolute yeah. classic in My Me Mine. So, you know, he was in the same creative zone as as Paul McCartney was. John Lennon probably a little less at this point. And you can see that frustration build and build and build. But but him quitting just seems to sort of come out of nowhere. So I'm sort of going to dump on you because as a younger sister... Could you sort of relate to that, that he was the, like the young guy with the, with the older brothers and his voice wasn't being heard? Big time, big time. I yeah. mean, you know that from, from my sisters. But yeah, no, I totally, I totally understood where he was coming from. He was shouting into the void and nobody was paying him any attention. I think that leaving the band was a bit excessive, but I also understand where he was coming from. That He just felt so frustrated that it was the only statement he could think of making because although he was talking to Paul and Paul was talking to him, Paul wasn't really getting... No, Paul didn't want to get what he was saying. Paul had his agenda and George's songs weren't as big a part of them, part of that agenda as George wanted them to be. That was my take. But I think it wasn't just about George's songs. It was about ideas George had for how he should play for Paul songs that Paul didn't like. Yeah, I, I, they were talking but not communicating. Yeah. 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 Talking earlier about, you know, Paul's moment of discovery with Get Back when he's noodling away and they, they zoom in on Ringo and George. George is bored out of He's not taking any notice. No. He's bored, he's yawning, he's looking around. And then he starts to hear something form and then he starts to get... While Ringo is watching oh, Paul intent, so intently. intently yeah. f- Every second, yeah. and, then, and George is off wandering, looking around, and then yawning, and then it, you see him start to think, "Hang on, something's happening Something, here." That, that's the song. Yeah, and he starts to take attention, then yeah. picks up the guitar and joins in. But uh, as as an only child, I don't have that sibling thing. But that's what it it felt like to me watching it. And, yeah. and I felt a bit uncomfortable being there. It's like, you know, these guys, and I know it was part of the, the point of the show, but, you know, should we have been there watching them while they were having these sort of Yeah, I've, I felt the same. I felt the same. It, it felt a little bit too voyeuristic at that point. Yeah. And I'm so glad that they were just like, he left, and then they did little updates about their conversations that there was no attempt to try and record and cash in on the pain of all of them. I mean, Ringo's face was a picture when they were arguing and, and they yeah, were trying to get he there. Was he, was, he was hurting. He kept very quiet. Yeah, that was very hard to watch. It was. So talking about recording things, the one thing that both you and I totally disliked, and, but I know a lot of people thought was cool, and I don't think it was cool at all, was the secret taping of the private conversation between Paul and John in the canteen where they'd hidden microphones in the flower pots. Um, I thought that was um, horribly intrusive. And I don't think it was an illuminating a conversation as other people seem to think it was. No, I thought it was awful. I plain and it was just terrible. You've got two guys who are trying to work out a problem and they should have just been left to sort out that problem. To be that intrusive was taking things a bit too far. And I think you can see where it wasn't 
the breaking up of the band wasn't just one thing, but it was things like that. Too many people wanted a part. Too many people wanted to own what they had to offer, and they weren't allowed to do certain things in peace. Right, and Paul was sort of thrust into a role that he didn't really want. Yes. And yeah, you know, and he could yes. see John drifting in a different direction and issues with George and stuff, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and well, Ringo's trying to be the glue and hold them all yeah, together. Yeah, poor old Ringo. Yeah. Bad for him. Just before we leave that, I think for me, one of the, uh, not a highlight, but most poignant moments of the, the whole thing was the morning after when they're back at the studio and Ringo's there bright and early because he's always the first one there yeah. and, and Paul turns up and they're waiting for John to turn up and he's not turning up and Paul looks at Ringo and says and then there were two and he, he's almost on the point of tears I, I mean I, I was almost tearful just watching yeah, him it was yeah very, it was very hard to watch yeah it was very sad but, and the anxiety that they were done kind of just quietly done as, yeah so. it was very sad but at the end of that, their time at Twickenham runs out because they, they only had the stage for a certain amount of time. So they decide to decamp to Apple Studios, where we get to part two, where they basically put together a makeshift studio in the basement of the Apple offices in a more familiar environment. And after a weekend or so away, George is back and they really start to come together. Pardon the pun. As a, <laughs> as a, that was unintentional. As a uh, my favorite. As a yeah, I know. As a band together, they really start to sort of get in the groove. Um, so part two is really about them doing those rehearsals in the studio. Yeah. I mean, how did you feel about that sort of switch in atmosphere and, and sort of watching that? That they really started started to come back together. I thought they looked and felt much more comfortable. The music seemed to be flowing better. It seemed to be their environment. I mean, it was interesting how much of it changed and they'd be just kind of not oblivious, but they'd be doing their thing and stuff would be changing around them to try and get the best sound possible. I think I felt they they seemed to feel that some of that was a bit like, oh, come on, guys, all we're trying to do here is play. And you're interrupting that creativity and flow. You know, you say you want this many songs, but we can't do it if you're constantly changing things out and moving us around. Yeah, but then they seem to settle back in and resume their old jokey, fun kind of relationship and the creativity really started flowing. It was almost like they needed the blow up. Something was building anyway. Did that blow up of George walking out to be like, yes, we still want to do this. We still want to be the Beatles. We still want to do an album. We still want to make music together. And I think that was in the end quite important because that second episode really goes to show them really getting down to doing that work and working things out. I mean, the the thing I really didn't understand and I absolutely loathed was the whole Yoko Ono screaming into the microphone. I don't understand what that was about. wish they hadn't played quite so much of it personally i know they were mucking about and having fun but that yeah i think there was two things one that was what yoko did that was her performance art at that point and for quite a few years afterwards that was her thing but i i think what it did show it because the others joined in was the again what we talked about that acceptance of yoko that they were humoring her or she was part of the band you know not part of the band but part of the group and you know she had her thing they they, accepted her yeah accepted her yeah I get that. I just didn't care for it. And mm. they could have done it without showing it. Oh, they could have just done it once, not the two yes. or three times that they yes. did. Yeah. But on the opposite hand, we had the arrival of Billy Preston, 
who they knew from their Hamburg days, um, you, you could see them just light up when he came in the room. Yeah, you could. You could. And he just added so much to it. I mean, I'd always, you know, known him or thought of him as, you know, keyboard guy who played on the rooftop concert. Um, I didn't realize just how much he'd been involved and just some of those keyboard licks and keyboard things that just came out from him noodling around. Yeah. With, um, yeah. Um, it was amazing. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fascinating. And, and again, a bit like I talked about with um, George and Ringo, when they started playing, he'd just come up with stuff. He'd, yeah. he'd, he'd find a temp and add in something and it yeah it was just it was very interesting it was it, it made them it pulled together as a band i think they need almost needed that outside person to add because they were they were missing a sound with trying to do it live and he added that extra sound that they couldn't have one of them playing the guitar and then suddenly run into the piano. Yeah, and I don't think it was just the, the, a keyboard player, but they needed a keyboard player like him who could yes. actually contribute to the songs and, mm-hmm. and stuff rather than just play what they'd said, who actually gave his own creative spin on things. And was comfortable doing so. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, because not a lot of people would have been. I, I think part of that goes back to the fact that they used to play you know, together in the Hamburg nightclubs, yeah. but before you know, before they were famous, so they, they went. He probably wasn't awed by the fact that they were the Beatles because they were the four guys from Hamburg that he'd known earlier on. They were mates. They were mates, yeah, and it came across. And I think he very definitely sort of laid claim to the title of the fifth Beatle. I don't think there's any argument <laughs> after this that uh, he was definitely the. No, fifth I'd, I'd give him. I'd give him that one. Also, wasn't that the episode Linda Eastman bought her daughter Heather? Fun, very cute, because she wasn't having any scuff off of John. Gave as good as he was giving her. Everybody seemed, you know, muck about with her, and and seeing her with Paul was lovely. Uh, and with Ringo, the way she was playing around with Ringo as yeah. well, and the fact, and she did her own take on Yoko Ono's uh, screeching yes. Yes. Uh, stuff as well, which was yes. cool to see. And Yoko was okay with it, which was great as well. So uh, yeah, it was good to yeah added added a lightness, but they still managed to be creative and productive yeah. at the same time. Let's move on to part three, which all of this was leading up to. And I know you and I have a slight difference in not opinion but appreciation. I think for the rooftop concert, I was looking forward to the full rooftop concert. Um, I think you were a little disappointed in it, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I thought it was a concert. I didn't realise they were going to keep playing the same three songs or four songs or whatever it was. They're all ones I like, but I didn't need to hear them like three times one to the other. Um, But I I get what they were doing. I'd forgotten, really. You know, they were still recording an album. They still needed to be recorded. I did enjoy the politeness of the police. I enjoyed the reactions of the crowd down below, the variety of ages of people who really liked the Beatles, the grumpy old men who thought, stopping work today. Uh And you're like, oh, get a grip, you know. It was it was interesting. I just didn't know that's what they were going to be doing. And for that, for me, it kind of got a little bit tedious. But the police were so polite. 
They were, and I think I have a false memory there. And from what I've heard, I'm not alone on this. I, my memory, because not having actually seen Let It Be since the Let It Be movie since the 70s, my memory was that was there was loads of policemen. Like there was two police guys to start with, and then they like called in the local station, and there was like a whole phalanx of coppers trying to get them off the roof. And there wasn't. Um, there was the two guys, and then the sergeant turned up, and it was just basically the two guys on the roof making sure that Mal did pull the plug on the amps after he said that's what he was going to do, and that was it. it the- yeah, I mean, you do see down in the street a big green police van turn up, and then I expected a bunch of policemen to come out, run up the stairs, but nothing happened. I mean, maybe there's other footage that Peter Jackson chose not to use, or I guess we actually, whenever we can get to see it, Watch Let It Be and see if that yeah, explains I think it, your memory. I think it's a false memory, or maybe I'm conflating it with the the, uh, the rooftop concert bit at the end of Across the Universe, where they, you know, they well, are, maybe dra- dragging they are them a little bit more aggressive, aggressive there, and they're yeah. dragging them off. I don't yeah. know, but uh, yeah, the thing is, you know, we always talk about it as being the rooftop concert, but it wasn't a concert. They were still filming a movie. They were trying to get different takes of the same thing yeah, so they could edit yeah. it into a movie and they were still also trying to get good takes of the tracks for the album so they were doing multiple takes of the same thing i think they're actually you know for me one of the real stars of the uh, of the rooftop uh, concert um was kevin the roadie the little guy with the ginger hair he, he was great throughout the whole thing clearly cold up there because you could see john lennon rubbing his hands and yeah and, and he's that he'd forgotten the words. I Ke- was holding the words. Ke- Kevin was kneeling Kevin down. Kevin was a star. <laughs> kneeling no. down, holding up the clipboard with the, yeah. with the lyrics on for John um, in the freezing cold, I th- you know, because it was January in London on a, on a roof, so it's not going to be warm. Um, no, but I also, Debbie, Debbie the receptionist, yes. was a star. Yes, she was, yes. She was calm. She pretended she had no idea what was going on. There was no way nobody in that building was unaware. out of the loop. <laughs> unaware of what was going on, I know. Um, she was great, and the other guy that came and was there as well, and I can't remember his name, sadly. Yeah. I don't know if you can. No, I can't. But they were both great dealing with the police. And, yeah. And I think all the way through as well, Mal. Yeah, Mal Evans was, was awesome. I think yeah. he came out as a little bit of a star. Yeah, uh, he did. He did. Yeah, particularly when he was playing uh, his anvil on uh, yes. <laughs> Maxwell's Silver Hammer. But even the fact that, you know, he was, he was suggesting lyrics as they were going along uh, and then trying to capture, because, you know, famously, we know the Beatles can't write music, don't write and read music. Um, and obviously the lyrics were, you know, constant state of flux. And he was, every session, he was writing stuff down and trying yeah. to capture it. He know. was, yeah, he did a great job. Yeah. So. And they also ate a tremendous amount of toast. Toast. A little piece of toast. There's so much to choose from. There's brown bread, white bread, all sorts of wholemeal bread. It comes in friendly packages with writing on the side, but it doesn't matter which one you have, because cut the crust off, have it with marmalade or butter, cheese, tomatoes, beans, banana, or chocolate if it's strange, it doesn't really matter. Oh no, it all goes with toast. A little piece of toast. They did, didn't they? I would say. <laughs> and drank an awful lot of tea. And wine. But yes. a lot, there was the, just the toast is such a homey thing. That I know, tea and toast. I mean, <laughs> tea you and get, toast, yeah. Tea, tea and biscuits, you couldn't get much more British than that, no. could you? Uh, even at the height of their fame, and that was, that was really good. Okay, I think that sort of wraps it up. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition. Any sort of last thoughts? Did this change your thoughts about the Beatles as a group or individuals in, in any way, spending six, eight hours with them? Not change. It gave me a whole new admiration for their writing skills and how they just came in with a little tune or a lyric and, oh, I'm going to create a song out of this. And then they went and did it. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, 
I liked him before. I still like him. I just thought it was very, very interesting to see that that side of it, the creativity side especially. The whole drama I wasn't quite so keen on, but be able to see them doing that and creating it and laughing and joking together, especially at times Paul and John, like two naughty schoolboys, was was fascinating. It was. There were some very interesting deep looks between the two yeah. at various points, particularly I thought at one point in the rooftop concert when they were actually rocking and, and sort of Paul looked across at John and then John looked at Paul and it was like, we're still a rock and roll band. Yeah, we did it. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was great. Um, yeah, personally, I for me, the big insight was the creative process. Um, obviously, the fact that it's also flipped, you know, the Let It Be mythology about the breakup pretty much on its head um, and showed the fact that they, they were still functioning as a group um, and went on to record some great music here and laid the the, uh, the groundwork for my favourite uh, Beatles album in, in Abbey Road because there was quite a few of the songs that were talk, played here that ended up on Abbey Road yeah. which they recorded after this I just thought it was a great insight cleared up some misconceptions I loved the fact that they constantly referred back to events throughout their career they would make these little references which showed how invested they were I think for me the, the style was Ringo I, I've always liked Ringo I think he's a great drummer and a fun person but his work ethic they never had to tell Ringo what to do he was there first thing in the morning he was the last one out at night and he would be on the drums and I also loved seeing him compose with you know with Octopus Garden when he started with that and he and George were working on it yeah Um, so I think Ringo was an absolute star in it he was he was he was if you like the 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 grown-upest grown-up out of the four of them he had a good work ethic I also thought the fashions were fascinating. Yes, yes. Um, the the different ways they dressed really, to me, emphasised how they were all moving in those different directions we talked about earlier. That not, you know, that musically, I don't necessarily think fashion goes along with the specific type of music, but it just emphasised that they were all going in those different directions anyway yeah they were evolving into four very separate characters yes they were i I think there there was an end coming anyway and i think you know you you could see that that they were starting to drift drift into separate directions another thing that struck me you know this is the towards the towards the end of their career but uh, they're still incredibly young um john and ringo are 28 at this point george is 26 Paul's 27. At the end of an amazing seven or eight years of incredible productivity, they, they're still so young at, towards the end of their story. Yeah. I, I sort of knew that, but it sort of just reinforced it seeing them in person. Yeah, how long, young they looked. looked yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was, it was, I'm, I'm really glad we sat down and watched it and didn't watch anything else in between. That we so just that, focused on it. Yeah. yeah. So we could just really focus on it. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time and being a guest on my podcast. You're welcome. (laughs) We will be back in part two with a look at the recently re-released Let It Be box set. And that's not easy to say. Part two, the Let It Be 50th Anniversary Deluxe box set. Famously, the album that the Beatles rehearsed and recorded tracks for, Get Back, was never released after the group rejected two early cuts. It sat on the shelf, and three weeks after the rooftop concert, the Beatles returned to the studios to record Abbey Road, their last album as a group. After the group split in 1970, the unused Get Back tapes were handed over to Wall of Sound producer Phil Spector, and the result was the final Beatles album to be released, Let It Be. I, like most Beatles fans I suspect, have three versions of the Let It Be album, the original Phil Spector production, 
the stripped down Let It Be Naked version from 2003, and now we have this new mix as part of the 50th anniversary box set whose release also coincided with the Get Back documentary. This impressive box set includes four 180 gram half-speed mastered vinyl LPs, a 12 inch vinyl EP, and a hardbound book, all packaged together in a 12.5 inch by 12.5 inch die-cut slipcase. The four LPs included in the set include the new Let It Be stereo mix, Apple sessions behind the scenes, outtakes, studio jams and rehearsals, and the previously unreleased 1969 Get Back LP. Let's take a look at the contents one by one. Let It Be. This is a new stereo mix of Let It Be by producers Giles Martin and Sam Ockel in 5.1 Dolby Atmos. The 360 degree sound environment of the mix certainly opens up the sound even further. Concentrating on the Beatles' original contributions up front and Spectre's subsequent overdubs are usually behind them. The mix certainly increased the clarity of the vocals and the detail of the individual instruments without sacrificing the feel of the original record. And while retaining the overdubs and reproduction of Phil Spector, the adjusted mixed levels deliver a warmer, more organic sound that is perhaps the perfect amalgam of the previous two versions. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me Speaking words of wisdom, let it be And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me Speaking words of wisdom, let it be Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be Whisper words of wisdom, let it be And when the broken-hearted people living in the world agree There will be an answer, let it be Get Back I was probably most excited that this box set included the first official release of the proposed Get Back album What we get here is producer Glyn John's 1969 master and it's a raw and raucous compilation that I think reflected exactly what the Beatles asked for when they requested an unvarnished album. I'm not sure what the critical reaction would have been in 1969 with this coming on the heels of the sophistication of Sgt Pepper, but it plays better in a post-punk era and I enjoyed it and it met my expectations as being the high point of the box set for me. I love the retro time warp feel to the packaging and the original sleeve design, retro sleeve notes, and nice details such as the flimsy inner white sleeve with the angled corners that was prevalent on British album releases in the 60s and 70s. Taking it out of the sleeve for the first time almost felt like I'd rushed a couple of miles home from the local record shop I used to frequent as a teenager. The 
The Apple Sessions disc is a fun look at the development of Paul's signature Let It Be and long and winding road tracks, plus a couple of others. I've seen it described in a review as more like a radio show with occasional dialogue interspersed, and I think that's a good summary of this disc. There's not much new here, but it is an enjoyable listen. Rehearsals and Apple Jams. It's slightly shorter listen at 32 minutes compared to the 40 minutes of the Apple Sessions disc, but it seemed to pack more into the grooves with early versions and tryouts of several songs that would later pop up on various band members' solo albums and five tracks that would find their way to my favourite Beatles album, Abbey Road. There's no solo or anything complicated. It's purely just rhythmical and vocal. And if we suddenly had a Lowry organ... EP is a 12 inch 45 RPM EP and yes it fooled me for a second I did start to play it at 33 but it gives some additional alternate takes. Side one is the Across the Universe and I Me Mine tracks from Glyn John's 1970 mix of Get Back while side two offers new stereo mixes of the Don't Let Me Down and Let It Be singles. rain into a paper cup they slither wildly as they slip away across the universe pools of sorrow waves of joy are drifting through my opened mind possessing and caressing me I'll discuss the book that came as part of the set in the next section of the podcast. But there's one thing missing here, the thing that was the climax of the three-part documentary, the rooftop concert. While certain takes from that were used on the Let It Be album, the full concert set has yet to be officially released. This box set seemed like it would be the perfect opportunity, so I'm left wondering will we see a Get Back soundtrack release at some point that includes that iconic set. We can only hope. Part 3 the Get Back and Let It Be books. As these two new books cover the same ground around the recording of the sessions that resulted in the controversial final Beatles album, I thought it would be interesting to do a side-by-side read. The Get Back book is a general release coffee table book with some great looking photos surrounding what is basically transcriptions of the conversations captured on tape during the filming of the two recording sessions that led up to the famous rooftop concert. Straight transcripts can be a difficult read and it takes a while to get into the flow of the back and forth, but they do provide an insight into what was happening between the music. But it's probably a book that would be more appreciated by those already steeped in Beatles minutiae than the casual fan. In the end, I'm not sure what the purpose of the book actually is intended to meet. Sure, it's pretty, but it doesn't add anything beyond the documentary. The Let It Be book that came with the new box set release of the album provides a different take on the same sessions. This 104-page hardcover book is not only beautifully designed, 
but offers a relatively concise chronicle of the album from beginning of the sessions through the final releases. Paul McCartney, Giles Martin and Glyn John all offer essays, John Harris ponders the myth and reality of the Let It Be sessions, and Kevin Howard offers two essays and a helpful track-by-track guide, which delves into not only the takes heard on the collection, but also the version of each song that was utilised for Get Back, Let It Be and Let It Be Naked. Overall, it's an easier and more accessible read. Put together, the two books provide an extensive and comprehensive look at the creative process during the Beatles' final days. In our next episode, we return to the story of the Fab Four before they were Beatles, as we move into 1959 and catch up with Ringo, while the Quarrymen go through some more changes leading up to their next big break. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favourite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, Paul McCartney, Get Back, Its Initial Creation, George Harrison, I Me Mine, First Demo, The Beatles, Come Together, Intro, Yoko Ono with John Lennon and Paul McCartney, Freak Out Jam, The Beatles with Billy Preston, Don't Let Me Down, a rehearsal, Street Band, Toast, The Beatles, Let It Be, the 2021 mix, The Beatles, One After 909, the 1969 Get Back mix, George Harrison with Paul McCartney, John Lennon and Ringo Starr, All Things Must Pass, Intro and First Rehearsal, The Beatles, Across the Universe, 1970 Get Back mix. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I'll add a link in the show notes. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrin Entertainment, a division of 4J's Group, LLC.